the old pilot's plane tails. The 49ers. Not every airline has an amicable relationship with their pilots. This three-part interview covers the longest industrial dispute in aviation history. I'd like to introduce to you a past president of the Hong Kong Air Crew Officers Association, Captain Nigel Demmer. Good morning, Nigel. Thanks very much indeed for agreeing to talk with us. I wonder if you could start by giving us a brief resume of your flying career. Um, basically, I did 16 years in the military. That's the Royal Air Force. And uh, 20 years at Cathay. About three years at Korean at the end. So I quit exactly 40 years after uh, I joined the Air Force. Um, in the military, I... I was basically doing single-seat ground attack on Jaggers. Bit of training on Hawks and uh, finished up as a A2 QFI and QY. That's a qualified flying instructor and a qualified weapons instructor. Then went into uh, Cathay in Hong Kong. After leaving the uh, Royal Air Force, what attracted you to Cathay Pacific? I'd made a relatively early decision with my wife that we were going to transition to the airlines. Never been further east in the world than Cyprus with the military, so we were actually quite attracted to going out to Asia and having a good time there. And so Cathay was a good airline. It was it was quite a, a well-worn path of guys leaving the military and going out to Cathay, so it wasn't an unknown quantity, although Hong Kong was brand new and it was basically attractive to a youngish guy. Yeah, I don't blame you. So uh, was it tough getting in? And what kind of pilots were generally uh, being recruited by Cathay? In those days, it was 40% Brits, 40% Aussies, and 20% other colonials. Cathay didn't recruit from America or Canada in those days. A few guys from South Africa. You needed to be a certain type of person to want to go and work in Hong Kong and, you know, on the edge of China. They certainly had uh, more than enough applicants for the few jobs. When I got there, I was about number 674, so it was a relatively small airline, and they had more than enough applicants to get in. So you had to be experienced, self-sufficient to even get through the, the door with them, let alone get to the interview with them. What was life like in Hong Kong on your original contract? It's brilliant. If you're a pilot, basically, you want to fly for free, <laughs> you do it. And as many, um, you know, Ryanair and what have you, are capitalizing on that desire. So to actually go to a job where we had to do was straight in approach rather than shooting things down. You just do a straight in approach and land as softly as you could uh, and get paid telegraph numbers for doing it rather than RAF pay. Uh, it was brilliant. And Asia was fantastic. Um, my wife was, the social life was good. It was great. Um, brought the kids up. It was just great to start off with. Fantastic, actually. What sort of perks were there in your country? You used to get a lot of uh, fancy allowances, didn't you? Well, the difference between Cathay and, say, British Airways, which was the other sort of direct comparison, um, was you needed to attract people to come out to Hong Kong. And I'm now sitting in England and, you know, uh, we're used to certain things like a uh, reasonably large house, a garden, space, schooling is f sort of free to the average Brit. Um, and it's not like that in Hong Kong. So 
everything costs money, everything's cramped. And so to attract people to come from the wide open spaces of Australia or from leafy uh, England, you needed to make sure they could uh, live in a decent house or they just wouldn't come. You know, they needed good education for the kids or they wouldn't come. So uh, Cathay had to bring in foreign pilots, although it's a colony then, it, they weren't really foreigners. Well, I suppose the Australians were. Um, but they had to bring in, attract people to come, so you had to pay for it, benefits. What happened to change things? Well, like airlines, I mean, Cathay was a premium airline, like some of the other airlines, like Pan Am, you know, they were top-notch. It was a premium airline, but competition. And um, management basically had to restructure and uh, cut some of their costs because uh, profits were falling. And managements around the world, you know, from Frank Lorenzo onwards and what have you, they'd been restructuring and cutting and cutting and cutting, trying to make more profit because that's the objective of one of the objectives of a business is to make profit. So basically, in 93, they introduced B scales for the pilots. So it was about a 40% less than I was paid, and looked, they were on a new contract. Still guys were coming through the door to it, so then the next target after they'd introduced the B-scales was obviously the following year. They went for us, the existing pilots, on our A-scales, fat cap salaries as they looked at it. So um, you were basically doing the same jobs uh, as other pilots, but they were being employed on a much lower salary. Wasn't that a bit divisive? Yeah, it was. But of course, you know, it started off with us and them minority. Um, they, they were still getting first class people walking through the door prepared to work for less money. But obviously over time, and it was only a matter of time before B scales were replaced with C scales and C scales with F scales. And I missed a couple out there deliberately, F for freighters. But um, divisive not amongst the pilots because pilots tend to be pretty uh, cohesive bunch anyway um, but it, it did we could see the writing on the wall um, so we had a, a bit of a shindig in 94 where they offered us new contracts and what have you as soon as we signed that the ink was barely dry on the contract and then uh, oh well we're changing your benefits and so the focus then became on what was contractual what wasn't uh, in 96 they said oh we're now hiving off the freight operation um so all the freight's going to be done by uh, other pilots on different contracts that definitely created a bit of a stir then in 98 we got the asian financial crisis which hit all of the airlines actually but mainly obviously in asia and so that gave them an excuse to say well yeah i know four years ago we uh, put you on new contracts but we just want you to have another look at another contract and it was a continual steamroller effect this steamroller was advancing towards us as a pilot group and it it was coming it was just how much you could try and slow it down in the process what inspired you to get involved with the Cathay Pilots Union I, it's called the Hong Kong Aircrew Officers Association um well being ex-military and brought up in the 70s for anyone that knew I was sort of uh, pretty anti-unions I have to be honest um, Scargill was the miners' leader. We had all the stuff going on in Fleet Streets. 
They seem to be running battles every day. So I was sort of actually anti-unions. However, when you're in with a bunch of blokes who are all facing the same thing, you've got this uh, sort of collegiate group thing. And there are a lot of people working hard for me to improve my benefits. And so I, I offered to assist in the background in 94 and just offered to help out on the stuff in 94. And it slowly progressed from there. How did the Aircrew Officers Association, uh, the AOA, their relationship with the Cathay management develop? Well, I remember being in a coffee bar up in Rossmouth in Scotland, still in the military, and they were talking about this sort of thing. And um, they said, oh, the AOA has instituted a woe campaign, WOE, withdrawal of enthusiasm. So we had a bit of a laugh about that. And when when I got to Cathay just a couple of years later, it was always a very friendly, um, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours type relationship. The director of flight operations, DFO, his name was Mike Hardy. He was an ex-group captain from the Air Force. You know, the, the, the it was friendly. And um, people would ask for this and there'd be a bit of a... Huff and puff, and whoa, yes, all right, and we'll do this. And but it was uh, everyone was still after the same goal, like you know, we want to fly airplanes, you want to pay us money, we want to shift our passengers, you know, we're after the same thing. But so '94 was a bit of a shock, to be honest, to the pilots. This was a bit too much in your face, and so it was still very polite in 95 but it just deteriorated in 96 um, and it just progressively became more reactionary you know what are you after this time well okay and what could we do about it so over two years uh, it, it deteriorated into an us and them rather than we're all in this together type thing it went from the happy family definitely to us and them didn't uh, you get fired at one point <laughs> well, I, personally, I consider I got fired three times. Uh, I think you're referring to uh, 96 when, as a captain, I was uh, deemed, uh, what did they say? Uh, you have unnecessarily delayed Cathay 508 on the 18th of April, therefore you're fired. <laughs> um, that was because I had become involved in the freight Thing. I was now on the general committee, and um, and one of the things that I've been tasked to do by my president, who's a great bloke, John Warham, um, was to do an analysis of why do they want to outsource the freight pilots. And I got pretty close with my numbers, but we had to ask some difficult questions of management. They used to do management pilot briefings. Uh, you'd have about 50 or 60 people in the room. And I, I must admit, with the benefit of hindsight, I did get stuck into the managing director and the director of flight operations. I've got it all on tape somewhere. And uh, they definitely didn't like me after that. And I think the rumour at the time was, uh, next time Demery puts his head above the parapet, blow it off. And hey, presto, when I had a technical issue... Um, which, by the way, the CAD, Civil Aviation Department in Hong Kong, backed me on. Um, they just said, no, you're replaced, you're fired, and um, that was it. So I was actually gone for about three weeks, but 
my president got me back because he proved Cathay wrong and used very good tactics, by the way. Another story, another time. But yeah, I got fired then. We all got fired in 99. We were all given three months notice to uh, sign the new uh, contract in 99 or 98, probably. Um, and then in 2009, at the age of 55, I was retired. I was the last guy to go at 55. And someone who was born the same day as me, he's still working as far as I know. What sort of protections did Cathay Pilots get from uh, Hong Kong employment law? Well, I think it was in the late 40s or early 50s, the United Nations came up with International Labour Organization and started saying that, oh no, actually, I think it started after the uh, First World War, they started trying to introduce protections for workers in the workplace on an international level. And some stage international labour organisation was born and it came out with basic freedoms of association, freedoms to join a union, um, no discrimination to bargain collectively. So in 96, it, it was still a British colony in Hong Kong, we had the basics there and they had just brought in collective bargaining as one of the latest um, advances on these international rights. However, um, as soon as Chinese sovereignty took over in '97, the collective bargaining and some of the other things were repealed by the new government. So we had the basics, uh, but nothing like uh, having other civilized societies. So let's go back to the period of the major industrial action that occurred. Um, and by this time, you were pretty senior in the AOA. In fact, at uh, one point, uh, well, you can describe to us when you became the president. So um, what was the uh, kind of environment that led to uh, the, the industrial action that you brought about? And what was the final straw that caused that? Uh, question is, what is industrial action? Um, it sounds like going to war and strikes and what have you. And pilots don't really like to go on strike. Um, and in fact, in 96, the then director of flight operations, Jerry Clemo, he put out this newsletter, two words across the top, industrial action. And it's basically because we'd said, well, we're not going to work on our days off. Don't ring us up on our days off. And he was trying to intimidate us and use word pictures against us, industrial action. Funnily enough, um, 15 years later, the... Uh, court of final appeal in Hong Kong actually said, yes, uh, refusing to go to work on your day off is industrial action. And therefore, if you choose not to go to work, you are protected by employment law. <laughs> so uh, it sort of came around full circle. Um, so we entered into this phase in the late 90s where we were on what we call contract compliance, which is just working in accordance with your contract, nothing else, not volunteering to do stuff that you didn't have to do and when there was something in the contract that said you know you've got to leave if you're on standby you have to leave the house in 45 minutes we left the house in 45 minutes the rules then didn't say how quickly you had to get to work <laughs> and Hong Kong's not a very big place but some guys you know they'd walk to work <laughs> so you know when when you're trying to uh, use what few tools you have to stop this steamroller advancing um, and basically 
after the Asian financial crisis, they told us, well, yeah, we're fighting for survival now. Uh, you know, we've just made a loss of money. And uh, so we got to give you a new contract, new pay cuts and what have you. So we went into this thing and we did that. And then as they made a 70 million US dollar loss in 98, got the new contracts in. And then, hey, presto, in 99, $280 million profit. You know, they didn't save $280 million off the pilot's pay. It's just... Uh, sure, you have a financial crisis, you're going to have a bad year, but they brought in all this stuff. And then in 2000, another year later, they made $650 million profit. So the pilots, I'm now getting a pay cut. It was a stage pay cut over three years. So in 2000, I'm expected to take another pay cut, whereas their profits are increasing. So people have got fed up with the lies or perceived lies. Um, and the other big trouble was the scheduling practices, rostering, whatever you want to call it. That's always, the um, people call it lifestyle, but actually your roster is fundamental to a pilot. If you're going away and you know, let's say it's Christmas carol time and you want to see your little girls singing in the Christmas carols, you want to know what you're doing on the 17th of December and you need to know whether you're going to make it or not or you've got to make your excuses to the wife and uh, kids early. So the schedule is very important to a pilot and they kept changing the schedules. The roster disruption was phenomenal. You know, one guy uh, uh, went to work with a clean shirt expecting to go to Manila for a day turnaround and he did a five-day Los Angeles trip. You know, it's just not possible to run your life. So the pilots got fed up with the poor scheduling. So that and the the pay cuts and what have you meant that in the end we'd had enough. We tried to negotiate with the management to rectify all this, but in the end we had a vote. I'm, I was now the president. Um, we had a vote when 96% of... Uh, uh, the union voted for limited industrial action. It just got to a point where, OK, we're going to do more than contract compliance now. We're going to do the next stage. The next part of this fascinating yet sometimes tragic story will come next week. Music by bensounds.com.